Hi, we're here at Holistic Investments, and I'm your host, Constantine Cohen. And it is my great pleasure to have here Tim Draper, the one and only founder at Draper Associates, DFJ and Draper University, an iconic investor in Silicon Valley. Hi, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, Constantine. Thank you, it's my real pleasure. And um, so before we go into this amazing interview, I just uh, need to go over traditional announcements, which are our disclaimer. This is uh, this content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other materials, legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. So here we go. I mean, Tim, I am your big fan, like a personal fan. You know, I, I've announced before to you that uh, I'm gonna, uh, my goal is also to promote a little of your book, right? <laughs> I got it too. Yes, so that, that was, a, was a present from Crypto Invest Summit in Lane, and that's where I think we first met physically and then met consecutive uh, years. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I've been following your career, and uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about the stories in your book. First, probably, yeah, I would say it's more of a human exploration. So I want to know uh, the first, uh, I would say, moment where you understand you want to become a venture capitalist. How did it all start? Well, yeah, my grandfather was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist, and my father was a pioneer, a great pioneer in venture capital. He plowed a lot of new turf. Um, I think he, he came up with a, the G, first GPLP relationship ever. Um, and both of them were very successful in all different ways. Uh, and since they were both venture capitalists, I, it was the last thing I wanted to do coming out of business school. And I, um, so I thought about starting a bunch of different companies. And then I realized that with venture, that I would, if I only focused on one that it might not work. And uh, so I, and I had four ideas and I thought, wait, if I do all four, none of them will work because I won't be full bore into any of them. And I realized venture capital was sort of well suited for me because I didn't have um, the complete conviction that an entrepreneur had on any one idea that I had but I also had a pretty good sense of what the future was going to look like. And so I, I, um, I built based on that and venture capital seemed to be a good fit for me. It was really a wonderful. Uh, it's been a wonderful career and it's, um, and it's an exciting place to be in venture capital. It has been, I know now it's very competitive and there are so many venture capitalists out there that I don't feel quite so special as I did before. Well, I think uh, I'm going to add a little bit of uh, uh, this feeling of uh, feeling special because I'm going to remind uh, someone who does not know like your uh, accolades, I would say, uh, you've invested in uh, such companies as Sky, Baidu, Tesla, you know, like Robinhood, Twitch, Coinbase, and many other great uh, exceptions. <coughs> So, uh, in your book, you're, you're specifically pointing out some of the uh, case studies, I would say, like Hotmail and Skype. And yeah. So, I mean, I think I've been, I've been very fortunate in that I was very early into an industry that then exploded. And uh, I had it as my mission to spread venture capital and entrepreneurship around the world because I saw how it built wealth and careers and jobs all throughout the world and 
Um, and as a result of having that mission to spread it around the world, I was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist to come into China. And so that allowed me to back Baidu and Focus Media and a number of others. Um, I actually could have backed all of the big three, but I um, didn't really understand Pony Ma and Jack Ma when I talked to them. And so it was my, it was a translation issue. It wasn't anything Seriously? Of us did. So just a second, yeah. you want to say that you didn't invest in Alibaba because of the translation issue? Yeah, I saw great passion in that man. He was, he was, I saw him give a speech all in Chinese, but I didn't know what he was saying. But I saw him <laughs> and I went, wow, that guy's got serious passion. But I thought it was sort of like politician passion. It, it didn't feel like business passion, but it turned out it was. And, uh, and Tencent, Pony Ma, I met him too, and uh, somehow didn't really connect on what he was talking about at the time. I don't think his business was exactly what Tencent ended up being when he pitched me, but uh, I should have just backed everything I saw in China. But anyway, we backed Robin Lee at Baidu. It ended up being a huge success. And then I was also um, really the first, or among the first Silicon Valley venture capitalists to go to Eastern Europe. And, um, and that was where Skype was uh, headquartered. Uh, the, the founders were from Denmark and Sweden, but that's where Skype was headquartered. And so that in a, ended up being uh, great fun. And I do say in my book, the, the book is fun, by the way. It's nothing like any book you've ever read before. I put a whole bunch of different interesting things in there. Um, but one is the story of, um, Skype where uh, where I had to do be in two places at once and at that time Skype was only audio they had about three million mm -hmm. audio and and uh, I got to speak on the um, I, I was talking to these guys and they said um, well maybe you can do a video conference from Estonia so that we can cover you in Palo Alto and you can interview um, Nicholas Zenstrom, the founder of Skype, while you're there, it seems like that company's doing very well. And I said, sure, I'll give it a try. But at that time, video was like this. Um, it wasn't very clear. It wasn't very uh, great. And I was wondering, I thought, well, maybe we can back it up with a telephone. But, um, but then Nicholas Zenstrom said, oh, no problem. We've got video conferencing. Everything's going to be fine. Um, but what he didn't tell me was we were going to be on the first video Skype video conference ever. And uh, when we did it, I asked my friend Tony Perkins on the other side, well, how did it go? And Tony said, oh, my God, it was so clear. We could see the pores on your face. And I said, I said, oh, my gosh, I turned to Nicholas and I said, wow, we got a winner here. And he said, not so fast, Tim. We, uh, we cut off 100,000 simultaneous phone calls to get the bandwidth so that we could run this video conference. Um, so entrepreneurs will do it, whatever it takes to get something great done, and, and he, he did. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's an exceptional story. I was reading it, and I was like laughing because uh, it's one of those books where it's real 
you know, stories is real life stories is not like fiction so that's why it's exceptional i'm sure that's how it was and I, if you don't mind i just want to quote a few things from uh, from the book there where you say that hotman sky created a new platform for freedom so that would you know like also inspire us um, because i think you know freedom it, it, it is important and uh, then you say the geographical borders would now start to dissolve and the world would really open up um, and those are global projects, and I think like your entire investment thesis are around those global projects. Like, and you you are not afraid to risk. You're you're not you're one of the people like you mentioned. Like you're like uh, as a uh, our my previous interview as I disclosed you was with Sasha Johnson, and I I know she also like with you together you were one of the first investors in like in Russia and another Eastern European countries, which is. A completely different story, but specifically to my, to your point in your book, you also uh, talk about the Ukraine story, which uh, again I'm from Ukraine, so I just have to touch this, you know, like absolutely. <laughs> so, and it's kind of sad story in a, in one way because you know I, I know that uh, you know your your daughter just took you to to Ukraine and you're excited about the food, the culture, etc. The president of Ukraine endorse the projects and would like if you feel comfortable you can say the name if not that's fine but and then something went wrong so if you can elaborate a little bit like you know how i would say this to me was an educational story how not to do business you know well the the great thing about my business and how i in my mission um it aligns with a lot of leaders visions a lot of the leaders of the countries all are looking to create an ecosystem like what we've done here in the Silicon Valley. And we've even, at Draper uh, Associates, we've even packaged the ecosystem for, um, for governments to go and put together the school and the incubator and the business plan competitions and all the venture capital and all the things that they need to get something like a Silicon Valley started. And, um, and we tried three times with Russia and they were all false starts. We had the, um, the Russians weren't quite ready to have the kind of trust that you require to um, build a great venture firm, a great entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, the Russians had incredibly bright technologists, but um, you know, when, when some government has, made business illegal for three generations that pretty much um, uh, limits the the thinking the business thinking of the population they're afraid to to try to make money they're afraid to try to build something with great distribution and uh, and that was a shame because we thought we could do very well with Russia and um, and Sasha and I worked very hard for in three different scenarios to put those funds together and make them happen. And um, one fund did happen, but uh, the team uh, just operated very differently from what we would um, think was a good way to operate. And, um, and so one of the things I ended up doing, I went to uh, Ukraine and had a wonderful time, uh, met, with the president, President Yushchenko at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he was showing me how Ukraine was actually the first democracy ever. Um, apparently, they, in the history books, that's, that's what they have. 
And, uh, and then I said, well, you know, why would I invest in your country? You've, uh, you know, it takes six months to just incorporate here. And it takes, it's like 50 bureaucrats before you get an incorporation. And he said, that will be one week, one bureaucrat. And I, I said, okay, go ahead, <laughs> make that happen. And as an act of faith, I, um, I did see a lot of interesting companies in Ukraine. And as an act of faith, I, I backed one. Um, and this was an entrepreneur who said that, uh, who had, you know, 50 software engineers, it was going to be an outsourced software company. And uh, he just took off with the money. Nothing happened. No business, nothing. Uh, and that, uh, you know, trust is the difference between a country that trusts where the people trust each other and one that doesn't is the difference between a wealthy country and a poor country. You get a poor country if you don't have trust. And, uh, and somebody who goes and does something like that, that was ridiculous. Why would you do that? You destroy your entire country. And you, um, you, I mean, I haven't invested in Ukraine $1 since then. So I, I, it pretty much burned me forever on Ukraine. And uh, the guy didn't have to do it. He could have tried. He could have created a decent business. He could have, I mean, he had the money. He just thought of it as his. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge mistake. And, and that's where all these generations of having business be illegal has really destroyed a lot of the countries of the world. They, they've made it very, very difficult. Socialism just didn't work anywhere, anywhere. It didn't work. It didn't work in China when they were the communist Chinese and, and where Hong Kong was a free market. Hong Kong went straight up and China went straight down. And the average Chinese was earning about $100 when Deng Xiaoping opened it back up. And the average um, uh, Hong Kongese uh, was earning about $35,000. So, I mean, there was a huge difference. And that, that's a great experiment of the same kind of same people doing something. And it, it just was so clear that socialism and communism just don't work. Human nature is to want to build things for to last and for the benefit of them, their families, their communities, and their countries. Um, and, uh, and if the government keeps taking it away or saying that's mine or whatever, or you're not allowed to do that, or uh, then you lose all that motivation. And same thing happened with Eastern and Western Europe. You, you come from Eastern Europe. It's a very difficult thing to operate um, still in Eastern Europe because a lot of the countries there, as my, now Estonia is the best country in the world to operate in. So somehow they've broken it. You know, they, they ended up with a government that was completely open, completely digital. Yeah. You know, been, they, they have jumped way ahead. So there's an opportunity there. But the other Eastern European countries, when I go back and forth, I always think God, the West is so far ahead of the East because it's just the thinking, the openness to a distribution channel, to a, a um, entrepreneurial activity, to 
being able to make money and do something good for society. It's very yeah. difficult to do if you think that your government is going to come swat you down. And I think um, it does. It takes two or three generations for everybody to get back up. But you did mention this new world. Yes, the Internet opened us all up. We ended up with this wonderful open world. We were all trading. Everything was very good and very happy for a long time. And then um, I think uh, the decentralized currency came along, Bitcoin, other other currencies, and they um, and they made it so that world could operate with other currencies, and they didn't have to be the currencies that were tied to these tribal little lands. They they could be global currencies, and they're better and faster and cheaper and uh, and decentralized, open, transparent frictionless. They're so much better than what these governments were providing in their currencies. So so right now we're at a very interesting time. The smaller countries are saying, yeah, Bitcoin, we want Bitcoin, we want decentralized, we want all that stuff. And then the bigger countries are going, whoa, wait a second, I feel threatened by this thing. And uh, you know, I want to go back to my own currency. I want to control everybody and whatever. Well, all the great entrepreneurs are moving from those bigger countries to those smaller countries. Um, you know, when China said they made Bitcoin illegal, Japan said Bitcoin's our new national currency. And, uh, and all the entrepreneurs left China and went to Japan for any Bitcoin entrepreneurs, they said, we got to get out of here. And so that there is now this, um, this, and I actually think it's also a little bit of a backlash. It's, um, it's like uh, people are recognizing that we are one big globe. They, they, they all thought we were tribal and they're kind of going, well, you know, the tribalism, that's kind of over. But so these, these old uh, leaders of these big countries are creating tension again so that they can create friction so that they can feel more tribal and they can protect their borders again. Um, and I think it's like the roar of the dying lion. These, these old guys are going, you know, ah, oh, no, you have to stay inside these borders. And the rest of us are kind of going, yeah, You'll be dead soon, and we're going to have a whole new world, and it's going to be open, transparent, global. We're going to love it, and uh, and countries are going to be kind of artifacts of the past. I, I think that these borders are going to be more fluid, uh, and they were getting super fluid until this nationalism came uh, came to bear. So. We've got a, a real challenge over the next five or 10 years to where we've got to re-globalize. Mm -hmm. And I think it's coming. I think we're all going to be better off. Um, but some of these old politicians and old dictators and old um, uh, government leaders are still living in the world that was tribal. Yeah, I I, I think what you've said is just yeah so true and 
it, with all the, I would say, open source technology that we see, which, again, Bitcoins uh, falls into the same category, decentralized, distributed, and we're seeing that it's no longer possible to control everything. It's no longer possible to stay in one like small sandbox and to uh, create more bureaucracy. Like you know, those regimes, those like technologies, and those systems, they will be integrated soon. So it's not a matter of like if; it's a matter of when. Now, but I want to focus on your, um, I would say, your story also. Like I, you, on June twenty seventh, two thousand fourteen, you. And you paid about like nineteen uh, million dollars for nearly thirty thousand bitcoins, which have been seized by U.S. marshals, and you serve as like an auction to the public. So you bought them, and I know that you talked up to a lot of your friends, and you predicted that they will cost ten thousand dollars, like in the next three years. And a lot of people told me, "Well, this is like this is crazy. There's no way we can buy those." And back in the days, it was with about five hundred, right, or something like that, right? And uh, so, I mean, can you, can you explain what made you so confident that this is going to be the next thing, right? And uh, you've predicted many things as a visionary, but I'm just curious, what, back then, 2014, fast forward, what made you so yeah, I, confident? It's funny, I don't predict very much, but that was one of those things where I said, you know, this, this it's sort of, I predicted and, and then I predicted again that um, by 2022, 2023, we're going to be, Bitcoin's going to be at 250,000. Um, the reason for the first jump is different from the reason for the second jump. The reason for the first jump is that there are a lot of applications that were already low-hanging fruit for Bitcoin when I made that purchase of the U.S. Marshall's um, product. Um, that they had confiscated from the uh, Silk Road entrepreneur. Um, but they put it up for auction, and I paid the most for the auction. So it made me feel like, you know, when you pay the most for an auction, you know that you've overpaid. But on the other hand, I thought, well, look, either this is going to be something really important or it's going to be nothing. So I might as well um, pay a little bit more to get it uh, because if it's really important, it's going to be worth many, many, many times what I'm paying for it here. Um, look, I already knew that it was better for remittances. I, I already knew that it was going to be better for people who needed to keep their um, wealth, even though even if they were going to be driven out of Syria or whatever. You know, you're right now, if you're from Sudan and you have a bunch of Sudanese money and you get driven out, the and then you're stuck as a refugee in Greece. The Greeks aren't going to accept Sudanese money. And so you are out of luck. But if you had Bitcoin, you could just pull that right down and uh, start your life over again. So, so now there's a currency that, um, that transcends politics. You can build your value globally. You can build value over time and you can store it in Bitcoin. Okay, so that is why I thought it was going to go to 10,000. So it's been sitting at 10,000. It's dipped around. It's gone up and down. But it's been around 10,000. And, and I figured that that would happen within three years. And it did almost to the day, three years from when I predicted it on Fox News. Um, so then... 
now um, we're at a, one of those points where um, the world doesn't really know it yet, but it's easier for me to send you Bitcoin than it is for me to send you dollars right now. I, I don't know where you are. I don't know. I, I'd have to maybe wire it from my bank. I'd call my bank, send you money, whatever. With Bitcoin, I just, you know, take this thing out and I just go, you give me your, you show me your QR code. I show you mine. It goes, and there's the amount of money and it just goes. And, uh, and so right now it's actually easier, but it's got to be easier to use and it's got to um, accommodate people in how they've been operating in the past. So uh, as um, the people want to be able to use credit cards with it, they want to be able to use, um, they, they want to just be able to buy things the way they normally have. And it's interesting that while women control about 80% of the retail pocketbook, um, only one in 14 Bitcoin wallets is owned by a woman. And uh, when the women realize that they, through the retailer, are going to save 25 to 4% every time they swipe their credit card, all of a sudden you're going to get the women all at once. Boom. And once there's a uh, once there's that much activity in a currency, um, the value of the currency rises unless they print more currency. And there are only 21 million Bitcoin. There will never be any more. So uh, so the price of Bitcoin is going to rise significantly. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I came up with those two um, predictions. So the first one came true. And uh, I think the second one will too. We'll have three years to, to from now, like to see like a first one. Yes, it's about 10,000 right now. And it, yeah, it's almost, it's down to like two, two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, if two and we, a half years, we'll, we'll be there. I'm for some reason, I, I have no doubt, but we'll see. I, I'm, I'm also not the person who's making predictions, but I, but I trust you on this. Right? So, uh, I mean, listen, you you've made, I, I don't know, probably you did some better investment, but if you just compute like simply like $19 million, like 30,000 Bitcoins, and then like with a price that you bought and now 10,000, that's about $300 million. Like, so it's a pretty good like number of X's, you know, so I, I good multiples. And I'm sure that uh, for someone who's watching it, like it, it, it is important to trust your vision, right? And uh, uh, that is inspiring. It's not only about- you know you know, it's interesting because I, you know, of course, wouldn't wouldn't want to sell any of my Bitcoin. In fact, I'm kind of buying more. Um, and uh, and in my venture business, um, I am uh, I, I still have to operate in dollars. I tried to do it in Bitcoin, but I ended up having to pay three times the accounting bill. And and we all know in operating on the blockchain that you shouldn't have to pay any accounting bill. Um, but what they had to do was translate it to dollars and then back to Bitcoin, then back to dollars. And then, you know, so once the countries of the world recognize and allow, recognize Bitcoin, allow tax, taxes, taxation to be done in Bitcoin. Um, when that all happens, mm -hmm. I believe that I could actually have a fund that I raise in Bitcoin, 
I invest in Bitcoin, the entrepreneurs pay their employees and suppliers in Bitcoin, and the entire circle uh, doesn't require any accounting because it's all accounted for on the blockchain. Maybe some people who have to check some of the, the work, but the blockchain is pretty solid. And uh, it's checked by 100,000 miners. Um, and, uh, and I can pay back all my investors through a smart contract. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a lot of legal fees either. So at the very least, we'd save on accounting and legal fees, but we'd also probably benefit because the entrepreneur is not, doesn't have the friction of the accounting and legal fees either. Um, and that, and all the work that's required and all that sort of thing, it would just be done automatically on the blockchain and kept accounted for. That's happening very soon. I can't wait. But in the meantime, I need to continue to run my venture business in fiat. And, uh, and so all of our, this most recent fund, I've just had to do it in fiat. Um, and it's great. I continue to fund the best and the brightest entrepreneurs out there. Um, but I can't wait for the day that, um, that we can operate this whole business in, um, in Bitcoin. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm I familiar that uh, uh, you're still investing, you're still active, like you're, you're also partnering uh, Draper, Gordon Hall, like, you know, we're good friends with Alon, you know, like we had an interview with him. Before. Yeah, we have, uh, we have something like 24 relationships with venture funds around the world. Some of them are branded Draper, some are not. Um, it's called the Draper Venture Network, and they bring us deals, and we... Uh, we share best practices, and uh, and it it's it makes us all feel more connected, more global. And I think our judgment has improved because we see what's going on in other parts of the world. I think that helps. So when I invest through Draper Associates, I have much better judgment than I would have if I had not um, built that network. So if I may ask you, I, that's that's. That's great if you mentioned about the network because that was my next question basically. So uh, you build an exceptional network, probably one of the biggest, one of the most successful networks uh, in the DC space. And I mean, right now, almost like everyone are trying to make this, like, but back in the days, so it was pretty innovative, right? So uh, if I were to ask you, like right now, looking back at the geography, like in, in the particular like 2020, like not an easy year for everyone, right? So. But where where would you see like one of the best deal flow besides the United States? You know, where would you and maybe where would where would you bet on like you know, investments all over the world? You know? you know, it's interesting. I I would generally I'm generally focused. It's it um, over time this has evolved, but I'm generally focused on the governments that are creating more freedom. And I'm generally taking money out of countries where the governments are getting more socialistic, more communistic, um, where or dictators, a strong dictator who wants to control everybody. Um, so the freedom is really where I make most of my investments. And so as countries become freer, as they become more modern, um, as they be create more opportunities for entrepreneurship, uh, that's where I will put my money and my effort. Um, I think I timed China just right. Um, now it's time to get out of China. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think India has really opened up and there are a lot of great entrepreneurs coming out of India. Um, and it's always been kind of an okay place to invest, but there's, they really did have a lot of um, government controls and socialism. Uh, so the markets never felt completely free. Um, but now they're starting to really free up. I think there's sort of a whole entrepreneurial class uh, in India that's really taken off. Um, I think uh, Europe's gone through three, you know, the generation where they ruled the world, and then there's the wine and cheese generation where they were just kind of living high on the hog. And now there's sort of a new generation of entrepreneurs, and I, I'm going to keep an eye on that. I think that's going to be an interesting place to go. Um, and uh, I'm, ideally, you grab technologies from Eastern Europe, you combine that with entrepreneurship from Western Europe or from U.S., and you'll have some interesting opportunities. Um, different parts of South America look promising. Um, different parts of Southeast Asia look promising. Um, and then Africa is, is a, a growing opportunity. And in lots of ways, the population in Africa is growing like crazy. Uh, so there, there are some interesting opportunities there. And I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on all of them. I know that the U.S. regulatory group has made it more and more difficult for me to invest overseas, but I will continue to try. Well, can you elaborate a little bit? Why do they make it more complicated for you? Um, I think under Trump, they've, uh, he, he has, you know, he put up the wall and he put up the trade war and all that. Was China. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I, you know, I admire a lot of the things he's done and I, um, I don't like the, the nationalism part of what he's done. Um, I like the free market part. I don't like the nationalism part. Uh, the nationalism part, I, um, I, don't, uh, I don't like. It's things like um, you, they're, they're little things, but they're, they're things like um, if you operate out of um, any of these free trade zones, um, whether it's Cayman or Mauritius or whatever, and you have investors from overseas who don't want to be taxed in the U.S., um, the U.S. sort of forces you to incorporate there and then incorporate in the U.S. too so that you have, um, so that you, you kind of get double, you double regulated and in some, in some cases double taxed. Um, Mm-hmm. There, I mean, he was really trying to create more jobs for Americans, and that, that was his mission. Um, but maybe too much at the expense of the rest of the world. Uh, so I, I think it's time to open back up, and uh, hopefully, he, if he's the president, it will be in his second term. He'll open back up, or if uh, Biden's the president, or or maybe maybe my friend. Uh, Brock Pierce, if he becomes the president, um, then we've got a real future. <laughs> yeah, Brock is. Actually- Brock is a brilliant man, and it'll be year. He's he's going to keep at it for a long time, I think, to become the president. But um, he's got a plan. If he wins one state, uh, that might end up putting throwing it into Congress's lap as to who becomes the president. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's the only president, I only candidate I've seen who is actually looking forward instead of looking back. <laughs> and I like the idea of somebody looking forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's uh, that's that's an interesting observation. He's actually given like you know today's speech at Blockchain Center in New York. Uh, so yeah, uh, might might see him soon. Um, coming back to your recent investments, if I mean, so you they include Robinhood, the Coinbase, eShares, OpenDub, and many others like in different I would say spectrum like it's government, uh, artificial intelligence, Bitcoin, blockchain, smart contracts computational genomics and you name it so out of all that like how do you even how is it possible like you know to apply due diligence for all those industries like i'm sure you have like a great uh, staff and great analytics and people who are behind your back and assisting you in due diligence but uh, you personally how how can you even make the investment decisions for all those different industries I, I guess I look for a different set of patterns than other people do. Other people really like to learn one thing cold. Um, I have a natural curiosity about what's new. And not only what's new, what's the world going to look like in five to 15 years? That's my natural curiosity. And so I'll listen with that in mind. When people give me their pitch, I think, what is this going to look like in five to 15 years if this person's successful? And, uh, and that has helped me a lot. Um, I don't have to go incredibly deep to figure out whether one company or another looks like it might be successful. Um, and it doesn't have to be industry specific for me to make an investment. In fact, I've invested in many, many different industries. Um, and, uh, and so I'm not really looking at it that way. I don't have to know it better than the entrepreneur does. I just have to know that the entrepreneur knows it better than I do. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But, but do, you, uh, do you apply to, is there some, like I would say, tricks that you would help, especially people who are in the VC space that are only starting their career? Do you, can you make an advice like, what are you particularly looking at, like, so to identify that the entrepreneur is equipped to make it happen? You know, I, I think the best training uh, for them is probably to start as a, an LP with us. Because what happens is if you invest with another firm um, that has a lot of good experience, a lot of, and we also do a, a VCX program, uh, an educational program for our LPs, uh, so that they really understand what it is we're thinking about what we do, what we don't do, how we get things right, how we get them wrong. Um, they, uh, they get a lot more experience that way. Um, if they just, the other way to do it is just jump in. But if, if you're just jumping in, I would suggest putting very small, 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 and amounts of money into those companies because um, you will have to learn the hard way. Um, I mean, I think I could save you a lot of bad investments uh, by having you go through VCX or some of our other um, educational programs. Um, We like to educate our LPs because we want them to understand what it is we do. 
some people come from the real estate business and and they they don't get it at all because they're all thinking cash flow cash flow cash flow um, come from the oil business same kind of thing but uh, we because we our business is very different it's ownership it's aligning with the entrepreneur it's uh, it's choosing entrepreneurs that have at the seed level have a 50% chance of success, not 80, uh, not 90 or a hundred. They have 50. And so we have to be looking at the things that if they succeed, become really big. I guess that's, uh, if there's any advice I'd give, I'd make sure I'd go that way. And you better diversify. That would be the other advice I'd give to an investor. So yeah, right now there are opportunities. You know, AngelList they provide some opportunities to invest. Like started from the check ten thousand dollars. Like it's a people can invest with like it's engine investing, like syndicates, and then there's option to invest as a limited partner with you, right? So if you if you were to compare the risk parameters, like risk reward, like ratio, right? You know, to go again, like into almost like have a self education and enter the space like with less experience regardless of your company, oil industry, real estate, or somewhere else. Uh, and as opposed to going for your programs you get and then like educate yourself and maybe in five years open up your own shop. So what would be the main criterion, main difference? So the main criterion of what? Oh, the, the, the difference between like, you know, becoming a limited partner as opposed to like, like with, let's say DFJ, right? Or any other of your sub funds. Yeah, as opposed to invest as an angel. So yeah, you would invest in Draper Associates. Well, not not any venture fund would do this for you because um, we are very big on educating. I have this mission to educate and spread venture capital entrepreneurship around the world. And um, the education part is something that other venture capitalists don't really want to give you. <laughs> they want to just sort of keep that themselves. Um, so uh, at Draper Associates, we take our LPs through programs where they, they get educated and they understand what it is we do and where we're going um, and what, what, what matters in an entrepreneurial venture. And so that's why I say, yeah, if you become an LP of ours or go to a VCX or um, then you, then you start to, you probably end up saving a lot of money and a lot of time getting good. Um, the other, because I'm always welcoming more venture capitalists into the world. Uh, I think it's great that what we've all done and what all those, uh, all the hope and trust that you've given to all those entrepreneurs and how that, how great that has been for society. Uh, investing on your own, um, you, it's it's a little bit of a um, a wild thing because unless you happen to be on catch a really interesting wave, you just happen to be hanging out with a guy, the PayPal mafia or the something. It's very unlikely that you are going to hit it big. Um, just it's more likely that you're going to invest in a you know a restaurant that fails or a you know, a garden shop or a something, um, or or something that just does, doesn't matter that much because it's easy to copy. Uh, so I, I suggest 
um, aligning as much as possible as an LP and then thinking, how do I go from here to where I'm investing my own money? Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I mean, I wouldn't have taken that advice when I was 26 years old. In fact, I didn't take that advice. People told me you should do it. Probably should have, but I did. I was lucky and I did hit it pretty big. And I did have a good tech, I had really good technical training. So I kind of understood um, maybe more than some of the other venture capitalists did how, how a computer worked, how software worked, what a peripheral was, what the, you know, I, I knew all that. Um, and they were, they were, some of them were kind of moving around in the dark. So I, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I just have to ask you about, you know, the Draper University, which, uh, you know, launched it in 2013. And, uh, like, it's also, like, I, I love the name Draper University uh, of Heroes, you know, like, very similar to, like, How to Be a Startup Hero, the same name as your book. So it's a unique educational program, and I don't know, we're not going to have, like, time to go through the entire crush course, but can, maybe you can... Uh, introduce some of the like uh, highlights of uh, uh, of Draper University, maybe some latest news, like uh, some note, uh, alumni stories. Sure. Um, yeah, we've uh, we started this school, didn't really know what we were doing, and we thought we didn't want to keep an entrepreneur from building their business. So we we made it only a six week course, and uh, and it's twenty four seven. We immerse you with so many new concepts and we we broke all the rules of education we made it team-based training we made it uh so we send people out on on um, survival missions <laughs> we um we do hackathons we we have we give them pro everything's project oriented we give them a project and say get there any way you want to get there you figure it out um and uh and those it turned out, it has turned out, um, very successful. Um, we've had 1,200 students come through these, the HERO training, and uh, about 400 companies were started from that. And they, they, those people came from 86 different countries, and uh, they have, um, uh, we've, we've got a, one unicorn, which is quantum, and a couple hundred plus million dollar companies that have come out of it, and quite a few $10 million companies that have come out of it. So far, they'll get bigger. Um, and, uh, and I think it's because we're training the person and not to the model. We're not teaching them what's a series A, series A. They can get that anywhere they want. Yeah. We're teaching them what they're made of and what they're capable of. And most people don't realize how much they're capable of. We push them to the limit and then we push them farther. And then they go, oh, wow, I can do even more. So um, now you still continue. With COVID, with yeah. COVID we had to shut it down. Um, mm -hmm. Our whole goal was to cram people together and have all that great energy form. But with COVID, we, um, we did an online program and it has now had 300 students. Um, it's only two weeks long. It's a lot less expensive. It's $500 instead of 12,000. 
and it um, and we're training entrepreneurs in in the same kind of way. Like we're giving people projects. We're we're saying, okay, you guys, you know, you eight people or a team, you guys go figure out how to, <clears throat> you know, build the next healthcare system or build the next something. Um, and that has been very successful too. So we're very happy with both these <clears throat> these organizations, and we're we're thinking that the um, that we can get better and better talent by having the online school and then the winners from the online school getting accepted into the hero training program. Um, and maybe even with a scholarship if they come. Uh, and that uh, might end up bringing us even better talent for us to d look into and decide on and focus on. But we've, we, you know, our, our hero training, um, includes survival training with Navy SEALs and Special Forces and Army Rangers. Uh, we have um, this hackathon that's 36 hours and nobody sleeps. We have uh, um, uh, some time where uh, the, and the entrepreneurs have been able to hear from everybody from Elon Musk to founders of Uber and Airbnb and you know, the greatest companies in the world. And they, uh, and people love speaking at Draper University because they know they're going to make an impact. And then even the students that don't start businesses end up get, getting promoted faster. Their, their grades generally go up, but, but they kind of bifurcate. Either they go way up to like straight A's or they go down because they're, they're in school starting a business. <laughs> Both options are great. <laughs> <laughs> so we at least, it, it's like we, we um, give them like a, a, a boost of some sort, an accelerant, and, uh, and their, their life is suddenly on a new trajectory that's going much faster. And if they catch the right thing, they'll, they'll be big successful. Yeah. <laughs> if I may ask you probably one last question, because I want, I would love to have more hours with you, but I know that our time is limited today. So in terms of the book that changed your life personally, like it can be somewhere from economic book or maybe some just more philosophical work. And what was that would be the one book that you would recommend someone to read? Well, I, I loved my dad's book. Um, and I like my book. Well, your book <laughs> like, is... that changed my life. I wrote one. Start up here. Yeah, this one. This one is definitely. Yeah, um, but my uh, my dad's book is terrific. It's called the Startup Game, and that optimism in his book is a wonderful thing to kind of put into your body. Um, but to get an understanding of the world and the economy. Uh, it was very interesting. There's a book called Bionomics by Michael Rothschild. It's mm -hmm. a little heavy. It's combining biology and economics and how um, animals, humans, bugs, they all operate um, as little economies. And then they, they kind of go plateau and then ramp and then plateau and then ramp. And I think the internet was a big ramp and then there's a little plateau. And then I think Bitcoin is another big ramp and then that'll plateau into something else. 
And before that, the computer was the beginning of a big ramp, maybe software. Um, and it, it gets you also thinking about what philosophically, um, the way you should be thinking about, you know, how, how should the politics work? How should the um, society operate? How, how does the community operate? All those things. It, it did help me in all those ways. But also in my book, I have a list of books I recommend people write, read. I mean, I read the Bible, the Koran, the Book of Mao, the Buddha, some other things. Um, and I did it because I just wanted to know, have a general understanding of what people have thought around the world in different places and how they think about things. Um, and it's pretty, it, I mean, those are all really worth reading. It's kind okay. of fun. Now, I was about to say that there's a reading list in your book. I was just curious to narrow it down to one. Oh, science fiction. What am I saying? Read <laughs> Dune and Foundation and and Snow Crush and read some of the real uh, Neuromancer. There, the, read as much science fiction as you can because that helps you think about what could happen in the future. Well, you live right now. San Francisco is very similar to Dune right now, probably. <laughs> yeah. You know, my son, Adam, said, said, yeah, I think our future is either Mad Max or Star Trek. And I'll tell you, over the last six months, it's been Mad Max. Yes. <laughs> there hasn't been much Star Trek going on. There have been a lot of Mad Max. I mean, God, I can't even see the sun most days. Yeah. You know, it's smoke. So, by the way, Adam, like, you know, with his uh, also a great fun boost BC, like, I would love to have him on the show as well, right? You know, so we're going to talk about it separately. And maybe, again, one last question later. This is going to be the last. In terms of, like, what are the, who are the people who change your life also, like, in terms of maybe not only family, but also people? Who well, I've been lucky because I, I had a father and a grandfather who were both in the venture business. I had a grandfather who was an investment banker and spread venture, spread investment banking around the U.S. Um, my mom was a just brilliant, very wise woman with great, a good, solid moral fiber. I think she understood people more than anybody I've ever met. Um, so I learned a lot from them. Um, and then I've had, uh, it, it's interesting, I, I guess I learned from, from watching entrepreneurs, I mean, Elon saying we're going to Mars and all the great engineers of the world decide they want to go work at SpaceX because of that, even though like 95% of the people were laughing at him, all of a sudden they're going, whoa, we might get there. Um, I, I, I think I've learned from that and Steve Jobs, he wasn't always the most popular guy, but he created one of the greatest products that I think we've any has, has ever uh, experienced. Yes. Um, and so I, I, I encourage and I like those people who are willing to stick their neck out to try something really extraordinary. And I think those are the people I learn the most from people who are willing to try things. Uh, and that's why in the pledge, the, Draper University pledge. Um, my first line of the pledge is I will support I will support freedom at all costs. But my but down about halfway through it says I will fail and fail again until I succeed. And I think there's something to that. If 
the ability to fail, the willingness to fail, turns out to be really a powerful force for success. Um, yes, and thank I, you so much. With that, I do have to go to my next meeting. And Constantine, yes. you're a great interviewer. Thank you so much, Tim. And I wish you luck with all your great investments. In your oh, life. good. I'm going to need it. <laughs> <laughs>